Kelly. And I'm Kyle Thompson. And you're listening to General Intellect Unit. And this week we're back with part two of our discussion of the People's Republic of Walmart. Uh, usual caveat, caveat supply. If you haven't heard the first part, don't start here. Go back to the previous one. Uh, and so on. In the previous episode, we covered chapters one through five. And in this chap- this episode, we'll be covering the back half of the book, chapters six through 11. And some concluding remarks. So where are we? Chapter six, nationalization is not enough. And yeah, I mean, it, it isn't, right? Like that's, <laughs> <laughs> that is, yes, extremely evident. Yeah, uh, very much so. History of the 20th century, we can, we can conclude that nationalization is not enough. Yep. Um, so, I mean, I guess I guess that's that for that chapter. Uh, no. Yeah. <laughs> uh, chapter seven. Uh, yeah, no. no. Uh, so chapter six is the history of the National Health Service in Britain um, uh, called the NHS. Uh, in, I mean, in general, right, it starts out as this... Um, uh, this 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 quite radical institution that had like a huge it, it was not only had a huge amount of uh, popular support it actually grew out of um, direct action from uh, on the part of of workers right like uh, coal mine workers um, became a national institution and then sort of fizzled and didn't really didn't really capitalize like the point here in the book is that it not that it's a shit show because it is it is awesome right it's it's a very dearly held institution in Britain but that it didn't capitalize on that early initial sort of like promise of a democratic and democratically controlled um, national resource. Yes. Um, because it sort of went through the development of it from what I understand from this book went originally um, like it's, it's sort of precursor organizations were kind of mutual aid societies um, to provide medical care to minors in Wales. Is that, is that right? Yeah. And then, uh, it, then it went through, um, like in the, in, you know, the, the wake of 1945, the sort of Pyrrhic British victory in world war two, um, where it's like, yes, we beat the Nazis, but also our country is utterly destroyed. Um, and the empire is a mess. Um, in that, in that moment when there was an enormous amount of, of, of worker activity and worker militancy that came out, um, you have this upswell, you know, labor comes to power, um, and then you have the program of the NHS being put on the agenda, fiercely debated, um, you know, the usual sorts of social struggles of, like, you know, the, the doctors and the people who profit off of a private health uh, system uh, opposing it, um, and then a, pre- a period of implementation, which was generally not very democratic, right? Um, having gone through the whole machinery of government from that initial worker upswell and, the, like, those worker mutual societies, which were obviously fairly democratic, um, you had an implementation that was fairly top-down. Um, and then as time went on, um, there was kind of a pushback against that and an attempt to democratize the NHS. And that was uh, a, basically a failure uh, because of prevailing political currents. Um, yeah. And um, I think like it, it, it's uh, one of the things I sort of noticed as well, um, going back to the kind of beginning of that, is that like these, um, this like notion of like, uh, social health care, right? Like it, it emerges from uh, mutual aid, right? Like from these, these, these friendly societies, it doesn't emerge from a market, right? Like it's, 
this this idea of a, a national health service health service is not something that would have naturally emerged from the market, right? Like it it had to be something that was pushed for, right? It emerged out of the failure of the market, right? (laughs) It was a a response to the failure of the market to provide necessary medical care to workers who needed it, right? And, like, I mean, that's as true in America today (laughs) as it it was then, right? Like, it's the the, the failures of the market are manifest in many. Because, like, I mean, prior to this this NHS thing, I mean, like, uh, healthcare was simply not available, to 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 ordinary people like the the only doctors that that were there were in the private employ of um of of the wealthy right like you you had a family doctor just living in the house or whatever you know and or uh or on on the sort of payroll um and like as a as a coal mine worker you simply didn't have access to healthcare so you get this like establishment of these um the friendly societies which are essentially a sort of pro- proto form of like health insurance, like you, the, the, all the miners chip in their dues and they get like um, these free clinics, and they can ev- eventually have a, a doctor on staff for the clinic, right? And that's that's how that starts to emerge. Um, but yeah, and as as you said, like um, you know, this is pushed for as a as a national sort of program uh, in through Labour's victory in nineteen forty five, right? Um, and you get it in there, but like it's. I mean, it just—it also has lessons for us now, where like the implementation of a pro a, a, an institution on this scale took took decades, right? To to even start to get anywhere, like it was it was the mid to late sixties by the time they had full hospital coverage for the country. Like until that point, it was like some some places have hospitals, some some just don't, <laughs> you know? Yeah, and and the, the quality of medical care was quite um, uneven from uh district to district uh in in the way that it was implemented um you know with obviously richer districts doing better and poorer ones doing uh not as good um and you know it it, it is also interesting that uh like that sort of moment where you have a transition from a popular political movement into like this implementation as as uneven and as long as it is um at the end of, of World War II, when uh, the workers' movement was so militant, they brought together those ideas of like the friendly societies with the experience of war planning, right? Um, and that was kind of the radical notion that uh, pushed forward this project. Um, yeah. Yeah, and so like in the war, the war effort, you had the emergency health service, which which proved to everyone that like, oh, this is a thing that can work. Um, and a lot of the, the sort of meat of this chapter um, kind of hinges on how like there was that that early promise of this kind of like deep democratic involvement in um, not only just in the sort of like demand for the service, but in its in its like design, right? That like um, the the friendly societies because they were obviously like they were indebted to their um, dues paying members. The members had a say in where clinics were built and in what kind of medical treatment was offered, right? Um, that kind of goes out the window somewhat and then there are like later there are sort of attempts to establish like community uh consultation stuff but it kind of doesn't really work out and 
ultimately, a lot of these reforms, if they are there, end up being rolled back anyway. Right. And then ultimately, they're all fucking rolled back, you know, by the, the, the 80s. Right. Like with with Thatcher and the kind of like capitalist reaction really landing. Right. Like it's it's counter blow. Um, or, you know, with like with with Blair, like some of these organs that were created as reform institutions or reform efforts to create greater democracy uh, inside the institutions end up actually becoming vehicles for. Um, you know, introducing an eternal market and and all of that, like, you know, the stuff we saw with Sears, right? Like that Sears nightmare being implemented into the NHS and like basically like corrupting it from inside. The, 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 like even the even these reform institutions get repurposed towards these like terrible Blairite uh, new labor ends. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this 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 new the, the business orientation and everything and uh fuck. Um, thankfully, like it, 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 interestingly, in Britain, we we can actually see the differential between these things because um, a lot of those reforms hit England the most, whereas the devolved parliaments like Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland um, largely sort of managed to just shrug that stuff off, and so. Um, Consequently, you know, the Scottish National Health Service is substantially better than the English one. <laughs> it is the, the the envy of the aisle. Um, yeah, so you can you can you can like literally point to the evidence and say, you know, internal markets, garbage, planning, good. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Neither from what I understand though, neither institution has like really achieved those sort of democratic aims that were envisioned in like the the radicalism of the 70s is is that right uh largely not yeah i mean um there's a kind of constant foam of little initiatives to uh, you know do community consultations like there's there's a lot of that sort of stuff but it by and large sort of doesn't really go anywhere like it's it's not the same thing as what was imagined by the the coal miners who were like creating the thing from scratch right like it's it's a very different thing and it it, it kind of i don't know I, I can't help but be sort of reminded of the the current push in the united states to get this national healthcare stuff um and what's kind of notable there is that like by and large that push doesn't even include the demand of like democratic involvement it just demands the service be provided so yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's that's worrying, right? <laughs> it is. Um, I mean, it, because I mean, the, the the title of the chapter is "Nationalization is Not Enough," right? <laughs> um, and it, yeah, it, it's that's that's a very fair point. I guess it's just coming from the state of affairs in in the United States. Like, um, democracy is kind of unimaginable. Because the like as we've been saying, like the NHS's implementation came out of a period of intense worker militancy, um, and you know, I mean, communism had just defeated the Nazis, right? Like, this, yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, like, it did an amazing thing, an incredible thing, um, and you know that would certainly lend strength to to arguments as as you know as many terrible things there were about the USSR uh, at the time. You could point to that and say, like, like, look at this incredible thing that that you know communism has done. Um, and today, it, like you know, the the workers' movement in 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 America is very very weak, um, and so I guess there is less of a 
a kind of conscious, empowered, reflexive institution or group or party that would be able to think beyond the the simple provision of healthcare by the state, which would certainly be an advance um, in the way that, like, you know, people look at, at the NHS, which has fallen short of its aims, um, and still consider it to be, a, you know, just a wonderful institution, right? Like, you know, that you, that, that that is already in many ways uh, very desirable. But to look beyond that, I think, is is kind of impossible outside of the scope of some kind of organized deliberative process, which simply does not exist in America in any way. Like, you know, the, 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 the word democracy in America is, is not terribly meaningful, right? Like, there just, there just is not a basis for democratic thinking. Um, so, so that that is a certain pit, uh, uh, certainly a pitfall that we can point to and, and look at of uh, way things are happening there. But I guess the point is that like it's very easy for us to backslide from demands for economic democracy towards um, acceptance of some kind of state uh, directed paternalistic system because it is better than the market. Yeah, right? and that that like um to kind of close up on on this chapter like that that sort of um paternal the the welfare state, right? Like was a major element of this uh in quotes post-war consensus, right? Like um that was built between labor and capital with all the fucking caveats in the world that it wasn't really a consensus etc. But I think it's you know th- th- there's something to this where um the, the forward momentum of the workers' movement in the West was was halted, more or less, um, it, in various ways. And, you know, this, 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 this genuinely radical sort of new institution was established at a time and, and, and through a time period in which the workers' movement was either on the retreat or was, uh, was standing still and was kind of being bought off by this, um, by the welfare state. And, uh, yeah, if you lose momentum, you're kind of just screwed. Like, as you were saying, the, the implementation of a system like this takes decades. And, like, without a sort of continual revival of that political uh, vitality um, in the workers' movement, um, it, was, it was easy for it to sort of progressively lose the plot um, as as its implementation went along, uh, to the point where you get to Blairism, and it's just like, what is this nightmare we are looking at? Right? Like it, it is <laughs> yep. so far off the mark. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh well. Um, so I mean, like the, the I think the title of the chapter bears out that uh, nationalization is not enough, um, and that's a theme we'll kind of see a lot of throughout the throughout the book and throughout the last couple of chapters. That like there's a um, there's a lot of things that aren't enough, right? Like there's a our sort of our great communist project is composed out of so many different components that are all necessary, but none none alone are sufficient. <laughs> you know, nationalization is one of them. Um, yes, yeah, and, and it just it, it does go to show, like certainly in that example, the the dangers of um, advancing the socialist project through 
uh, the 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 state, right? Um, that like because it's a machine of capture, right? Like it'll it'll recapture your efforts and just fucking direct them into itself. <sighs> Speaking of states, uh, <laughs> we can uh, we can move on to chapter seven. Uh, did they even plan the Soviet Union? Uh, which, which, which the answer is mostly no, <laughs> like by and large, at, at least not initially. Um, one, one of the big sort of ideas here is that um, the, the, one of the things the authors are positing is that the usual way of thinking about the Soviet Union is that, um, you know, planning is ineffective, right? And the pursuit of that ineffective planning creates authoritarianism. However, the idea that's being put forward here is that it's quite the reverse, that authoritarian violence and repression undermines planning. It gives you bad information and bad incentives because, you know, if somebody's afraid they're gonna sh- you're going to shoot them, they're going to lie to you about their production numbers to stop you from shooting them. Or like a, an example that comes up later where it's like um, these, these kind of brutal attempts to, to extract more grain from peasants, right? And what happened was the peasants just stopped planting the seeds because why bother? If everything's going to be stolen from you, you might as well go into the woods and live on squirrels. Because like fuck it, don't like it's so yeah. The the repression actually creates the conditions for shitty planning. Um, yeah, I mean I, I buy it. Like it, it seemed the the evidence definitely seems to match. Yeah, and like the in the early section here, it's basically these two chap these next two chapters seven and eight are going to be a, a full history of the Soviet Union all the way up to to the end. And in the beginning, I mean the argument here is that like. Firstly, that planning wasn't even a part of the plan from the start. Like, it's it's not really a big feature of the the early thought of like um, the, the these actors, and that through, throughout the early days and the civil war and such, it's it, the planning emerges as this kind of improvisational free jazz kind of response to conditions of crisis and shortage. And it, it, it's something that is implemented. Um, oftentimes against the objections of the Bolshevik leadership, right? That that like it, uh, the the process of nationalization um, often outleaps what the Bolshevik leadership is trying to do, and they're like, uh, "Stop that!" But it just kind of it it just kind of rushes right past them, and they just kind of have to keep up with it. Um, and and yeah, and, and you know. And yeah, like you were, you were saying that like the the Bolsheviks uh, generally um, were not particularly well informed about debates about planning. Like we talked about the socialist calculation debate um, uh, in the in, in in the earlier section of this book, um, and really the only uh, member of the Bolshevik leadership uh, who had any familiarity with the, the figures who were part of that debate, uh, was Bukharin. Um, and the rest of them, like, just weren't, like, that was not at the top of their agenda because they were professional revolutionaries, not, uh, planning geeks, right? Like, this is, it, 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 like, there were certainly assumptions made about revolution that were, kind of spurious um, and just kind of let them hand wave this stuff going into it, um, you know, in terms of like what you actually need to do to plan um, or to, to manage a, a revolutionary economy. Uh, but, you know, they, they just weren't really prepared 
uh, in, in any way for this stuff. And so the, the idea that the Soviet Union from the get was like, okay, guys, like we got this, uh, we got this, this, you know, planning idea. It kind of was informed by Marx. There's all this cool stuff that happened in Germany during the First World War we can point to. Let's just do it. Um, like some of those ideas were sort of there in the background. Like, you know, Lenin thought that like some aspects of the German war economy were very impressive or like point to postal services, like, you know, banks as coordinating institutions, some of the stuff that's kind of mentioned in here, but there was just no detailed conception. And so it was, as you, like, as you said, it's really making it up as they go along. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very much so. And it's, it's like you, you discover the need for um, control of production when you're in a, a situation of shortage and like distribution problems, right? And like sabotage. Um, and uh, yeah, and like it, it, the, the authors go through the kind of like the history here and like kind of how this stuff is kind of assembled, right? That like you get this kind of, yeah, the discovery of a need for, for coordination and like the um, the idea that they just use use the apparatus of developed by capitalism, right, and kind of have this like nationwide bookkeeping system and so on. And that's that's how you get the the beginnings of central planning. Um, but it's it's drips and drabs, and it's very ad hoc, right? Um, and then you know you get, you enter these um, conditions of war communism, right, through the the civil war and such, and it's like. Yeah, again, just just more 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 shortages, right? And more ad hoc nationalization of industries, and more a sort of more desperate attempt to impose order on the conditions of civil war, and that's um, these very unfortunate circumstances with which to start a um, program of rational planning, right? Like, there's a, it's not not a be- not your best foot foot forward, right? Yeah, it is. It is a very different place to begin than, uh, you know, Midwestern America in the 1980s, right? Like, it's, it's a very different place to get kicked off on starting a planned economy. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it's, uh, it's, 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 a, it's worlds away from, from the egalitarian dream of Marx and Engels, right? Like, because this, um, this is all just bureaucracy. This is all an emergent central bureaucracy. It's got nothing to do with... The um, you know there's no dem- there's no democratic input to this this process. It's just um, we've established these these bureaucracies and they've, we've got to crash fucking nationalized stuff. We've got to got to do whatever it takes to survive in this in these conditions um, because you you can't you can't run the risk of losing the world's first and only worker state. <laughs> you know? Like the alternative is worse. <laughs> yeah, um, uh, the, the Russian Civil War was truly horrific um uh, <laughs> and uh um it, it is a it is a progressive slide away from the liberatory ideals of, of marx and engels it's is is a line in this story right um and you know they they kind of try to bring it back in the khrushchev period but it just never really takes mm-hmm. um yeah which is uh, deeply unfortunate um the uh the, I mean, sort of one of the major features here as well is the um this kind of ongoing, uh, what they call the contradiction between the interests of urban workers and the peasants. So Kyle, what's, what's that all about? Uh, yeah. So the problem that the Bolsheviks really faced in, uh, the Russian empire or like the, the USSR was that there was a sizable working class in some parts of Russia Right. In some of the major cities, there was a sizable working class, industrial working class, because, you know, 
Russia did not do well by any means in the First World War, but they were fighting the German Empire for a number of years, and, you know, it was, like, they had industry. It wasn't all peasantry, right? But the majority of the country was still, um, you know, uh, peopled by peasants. Um, and there are sort of... Uh, fundamentally different material interests between uh, an, an urban working class and a rural peasantry. And the Bolsheviks were trying to sort of Rube Goldberg together some kind of revolutionary program that would uh, merge the interests of the workers and the peasants or reconcile the interests of the workers and the peasants in such a way that they could fight off the white reaction um, and, you know, secure this worker state. And then hopefully um, the Germans would have a real workers revolution in a far more industrialized country. And Russia could just kind of get swept along in that tide, right? Like, you know, the, the working language of the common turn as it was getting going was not Russian, it was German. Because they figured, well, you know, like that, if, if, if this is going to work, it's going to be in Germany because that's where the world's largest workers movement is. Like that is a country that could conceivably be led by an industrial working class and former worker state. They did not think that about the USSR. Um, they recognized that there was this, this real serious problem where the workers needed food from the peasantry and the peasantry only kind of sort of needed things from the workers in terms of like manufactured goods, right? Um, but more importantly, what they needed was a functioning military to fight off foreign enemies and secure the borders and protect the peasantry, right? Like, like that's, that's what they needed. Right. So this is your split between heavy and light industry, right? Yes. The heavy industry uh, was mostly at this time thought of as like, you know, being directed towards the war effort and light industry was something that the Bolsheviks wanted to develop in order to try to reconcile the problem of the workers versus the peasants, because they figured if you know, if we do more light industry, then we'll have, you know, sort of manufactured tools and, and consumer goods that the peasants might be able to buy. And then they can see some kind of mutual interest in each other. Right. But the, the, the fundamental problem was that um, the, the industrial base of, of Russia was was so limited and uh, that to to sort of, you know, as like, I guess Stalin put it, this like guns or butter problem. Um, it, 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 to, to try to like build up that, uh, that light industry consumer market sort of approach would mean, uh, sapping the strength of the military effort. Um, and this created a irreconcilable problem, um, for the revolutionary leadership, uh, which led to just horrific, uh, outcomes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and so I mean, this this sets up just basically it's um, yeah forced extraction <laughs> more or less, right? That like uh, that would go on go on for a long fucking time and get and get worse with with when Stalin comes along. 
Um, it was eventually justified by uh, by this guy called Preo Brzezinski um, as as socialist primitive accumulation. Um, so those of you who have read Marx are probably familiar with the primitive accumulation where capitalists first get the cash together, the, the, the capital together to, to get capitalism off the ground. And they were kind of looking at that and they were saying, well, if we take a bunch of stuff from the peasants, just like the, cap the capitalists did to, you know, various groups of people around the world in order to get capitalism going, then we'll have our primitive accumulation and we can kind of, you know, bootstrap socialism into existence. But, you know, that's all putting a very um, sanitized gloss on a really horrible reality. Yep. Um, pretty fucking grim stuff. Um, but that's, that's, that's the sort of the gloss of it, right, is that um, you, you have this, like, um, I mean, it's, it's not even so much planning as just, just brute extraction, um, which then accelerates with... Um, with like uh, in the Stalin years, with the kind of a, the establishment of like the, the five year plans for Goss plan and such, and th th it's only then that you start to get this like famed command economy really em really emerging. But it emerges from this stochastic, improvisational kind of process. Um, yeah, the 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 correction in the middle is the attempt to introduce like the new economic program, the NEP, right? Um, and this was the attempt to go in that light industry consumer goods approach. And, and just basically the, the horizon for, for communism was very distant in that point of view, right? That like, it was just like, well, you know, we're going to very slowly like prolet or like, uh, uh, like workerize this economy so that the workers, um, class interest will be able to prevail and then we can kind of think about moving towards something more like what Marx and Engels were thinking about. But that point of view, um, which is often associated with like Bukharin, um, did not prevail. And, uh, and, and Stalin's point of view of like, let's just steal a bunch of stuff from the peasants and get heavy industry off the ground um, was the one that did prevail. Yeah, a mustache stamping on a human face forever. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, and like, yeah, and like, it's, yeah, it's, it's bad shit, right? Like, it's really fucking bad stuff. But uh, yeah, and like, so this is where we get to the the kind of the the, the assertion for the the, cha the chapter, right? That like the this repression and the sort of the violence creates these these um, these really bad conditions, right? So like, I mean, earlier prior to Stalin, you had the whole thing of like, I mean. The peasants would just sabotage the process by just not bothering to plant the seeds because it's all going to get fucking stolen anyway, um, which makes the the famines worse, <laughs> you know. Um, which is just oh fuck, like it's it, this is extremely grim stuff. Like, um, and then with with in the Stalin years, you get like uh, repression along the lines of like um, because he, he like he purges all the sort of other think people and um, all the all the kind of clever folks and leaves behind these kind of dullards who are, who are loyal. Right. Like, um, and like, you know, you've got this, 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 these five-year plans to do, which means you got to draw up your estimates and you got to do all this sort of stuff, but like an, an insufficiently optimistic estimate will get you to the gulag. Right. Um, or just shot. Yeah. Right. <laughs> just dragged out the back of the fucking office and killed. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I mean, um, this, 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 I like the idea that anybody who was insufficiently on board with whatever, the sort of localized political situation was in their office or, or region um, was a wrecker 
and was trying to destroy the socialist project um, meant that many of, you know, the most uh, talented and, and well-trained people in Russia were just murdered. And, you know, there's a particular story in here that uh, really I found quite um, affecting because uh, they were talking about how, like, some some sort of agronomist was sent out to see why the, the you know, the harvests were so bad. And he got to talking to the peasants and the peasants were like, oh, like explaining like all the problems they were having. And so he, he sort of like, you know, pointed out how this was con uh, contradicting um, the lines that were coming from the government, right, from the higher ups. And then that basically meant that he was killed, right? And like my father was a range ecologist, but he did agronomy work as well. And he ran into those exact kind of disagreements with the um, with the higher ups in Agriculture Canada. And you know, if if my father had been alive in the USSR, it wouldn't have been you know bureaucratic problems and 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 disagreements and you know relocation and all kinds of stuff that happened it would have been him just getting killed yeah yeah i'm glad i'm glad he didn't get gulagged <laughs> yeah exactly like it's like that that definitely hit home for me because it was an extremely relatable uh scenario that i i i i've seen the general contours of play out in my own life but not to the same horrific effect um so you know it, it, it like all of this stuff completely makes a mockery of you know what what the communist project is about, right? <laughs> Which is yeah. about the collective liberation of the working class. It is not about the enslavement of the peasant, uh, the peasantry, right? The, the collective bulletization of the class. Yeah, Jesus. Yeah, like you know, basically these 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 collective farms that were created were just kind of like police work camps, right? That were you know they were under the supervision of commissars who were like, well. You know, if you if you if we can't trust you to plant, uh, so to, so as to grow the industrial base of the country, then we're gonna you know basically do it under like guard labor, guarded labor kind of situations. Mm -hmm. And like it, and it, it 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 makes the fucking the 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 problems worse, right? Like the um, you you end up with the these fucking farms being run by people who don't know how to care for animals, and so all the animals just fucking die, and so the crops fail because you're just left with fucking idiots. Um, yeah, that was a big problem where the um, the collectivization went so fast that um, it's not it's not that collective farms are inherently bad. Obviously, yeah. <laughs> it, it's yeah. that you are taking peasants who are used to, like who had expertise about a very particular mode of agriculture and very quickly forcing them into a completely different mode of agriculture and that like just shock of reorganization in addition to all the repression and brutality um led to all kinds of productive problems um yeah yep um so yeah i mean this it's um the way i put it down in the notes here is that like the requisite variety for the planning just fucking collapses and like good planning becomes impossible. Um, I mean, it, it does need to be said here that the, the, the grand result of, of this horrific process was that the Soviet state was able to build an industrial base large enough to stop the Nazis, 
right? Like, the, the, so as a micro level planning effort, it had many catastrophic problems and failures. Um, it did accomplish the thing that um, some of the people who were planning it tried to do, it was just to build up a strong military, but the cost was was terrible, right? The cost was truly terrible. And so it, it is, um, it, and, and you know, as this, as this book will point out, the sort of micro level problems that this trauma inflicted on the society would go on for the next like number of decades to just become uh, impossible to solve and uh, impossible to recover from and would ultimately cause the collapse of the USSR. Yeah, um, because uh, I think we, we mentioned this before in, in our coverage of Red Plenty, but like, yeah, systems can continue with the impressions they have at the start, right? Um, it's the conditions at the start set up everything else. Um, this does segue us into chapter eight, uh, hardly automated space communism, um, in which they, they open with the, the question of like, well, if, if all this was such a fucking shit show, how did the USSR end up as one of the world's superpowers and end up putting... Um, people in space and all this kind of stuff. And the, the first answer is, well, at, a, at an enormous cost, right? That's how they did it. And, um, and you know, frankly, you can achieve a whole lot, uh, even without smart planning, by just putting a gun to everyone's head. Like, you, you, you can, in fact, do a lot in that kind of scenario. Yeah, so, I mean, that's, I mean, it's, it's not like those are sort of incompatible it's just horrific um and and effective yeah those, those two aren't effe- those those aren't mutually exclusive right horror and effectiveness are not mutually exclusive <laughs> um that's right that's right um and, and 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 you know it is the case uh that as this thaw went on and as the the system of repression became uh less violent um the effectiveness of the planning system all like quote unquote planning system the command system uh also became uh reduced because it was a system that was driven by terror and by resolving contradictions within itself by means of 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 killing right like that that you know like oh you just there's an insoluble bureaucratic problem well somebody's got to die Right, like it, it, um, it, it was, it was effective, and it's it's very narrow aims. Um, and when we get into the Khrushchev period, they try to go in a more uh, humane direction, and a system built on terror is not really able to reconcile with that aim. Yep. Um, uh, yeah, definitely. Um, but it was still like by by the Khrushchev era, era when we're talking about like mid mid fifties onwards. Um, the system was coasting on the rapid growth that had been started by this crash industrialization. So there was there was still some steam left. But yeah, it, it runs out, and th- this is this is effectively covering a lot of the ground uh, from Red Plenty, uh, which we covered way back at the start of a uh, start of our run. And um, I mean, Red Plenty is cited here um, uh, extensively. Um, so I mean. Like if we remember back to, I'm, I'm aware that some of the listeners won't have heard those episodes. Like um, one of the issues there is that, like by the middle of the century, it was like the the Soviets were predicting that they would overtake the Western economies by the 70s and deliver full communism by the 90s. Um, and even the, even the Yanks believed it. They were worried for a while that these these folks would do it, um, but it never happened, right? Like so, what went wrong? Um, 
a lot of the explanation here is is to do with um like well i mean it's it's not so much part of the explanation here but it's the the description you just gave uh kyle that like yeah like a, a kind of a system founded on brutality can really survive a transition to not brutality but um there's also the problem of complexity here right that like um you have a pretty ineffective planning system and a complex economy that's growing more complex and everything's kind of connected to everything else so that shocks ripple throughout the planning system as we saw in red plenty right where the the decommissioning the the accident that decommissions one one machine causes this huge supply chain problem all the way through and this guy has to like figure it out on an abacus like how he's going to reconcile it um but the the complexity is also magnified by the the shift to light industry like to providing niceties like uh i don't know like shovels and spoons and teacups and that kind of stuff for um for consumption which uh you know is more various than heavy industry is like with heavy industry you produce tanks and guns and that's it um with light industry there's a lot more stuff going on so you've got this this kind of two-headed hydra of like complex uh economy plus like poor quality data and this like inability to process any of the data that they actually had um kind of kind of a conundrum right <laughs> um yeah yeah and and um you know as as we saw in in red plenty there's there's sort of an effort to address the data processing problem even if the data quality problem is kind of underappreciated and just sort of seen as like kind of impossible to grapple with right like there's lots of like sort of institutional reforms that they try to make in order to improve the processes but it just it just does not work yeah I mean, and like people are still people are still hoarding, and they're still lying <laughs> about the about the numbers. Um, but this 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 is our this is our boy Kantorovich from uh, from Red Plenty, um, and this is you know he's coming up with this notion of like using using computers to plan using these shadow prices, which is which is our classic kind of mar- uh, markets versus computers opposition, right? Like um, one of the problems here though is that like this, for the Soviets, like the you know markets sucked, but their computers sucked <laughs> pretty bad too, right? Like. They they weren't weren't very good at that either. It, yeah, it was a major problem. Like because they, you know, um, uh, Kantorovich had that sort of like plan about you know let's let's build a computer network to calculate um, uh, the system, right? Let let's compute, uh, let's plan through computation, um, and the price estimates were done on that, and um, I think it was it was like. If, by a far more expensive than um, the nuclear weapons program that the Soviet had gone, Union had gone through. So it was like, you know, trying out an untested um, planning system that was going to create all kinds of uh, waves, make all kinds of waves in the bureaucracy um, at a cost of something which is obviously useful, like... Uh, or f- greater than something that's obviously useful, like building nuclear weapons so the Americans don't wipe us off the face of the earth, right? Um, like, it just was not, it was a non-starter. Like, you think about how long the history of computer uh, computer development is from uh, the, 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 like the, the 40s and 50s um, up to the point where we have massive compute clusters able to do the sorts of planning we find in Walmart and Amazon and the amount of capital that was invested in that. And then just like think about how 
unlikely it was that the industrial base of the Soviet Union would be able to support that kind of, uh, you know, computer engineering effort. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. Yeah, so, and then kind of in the middle of the chapter here, we get this um, kind of digression through input-output analysis and linear programming and how it sort of all relates to this. So, so what, what's this input-output nerd stuff about? Because you, you've, you've, stu <laughs> you've studied this, this kind of stuff, right? Uh, well, the, 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 long short, the long and short of it is that, like, uh, Leontief and Kantorovich, um, Leontief was living in the U.S., um, Kantorovich was living in, in, in the Soviet Union, um, they made some breakthroughs in linear algebra, the application of linear algebra, um, in such a way that you can come up with something called like a material balance. Um, you can figure out what are the inputs into every, uh, what are the inputs into and the outputs out of um, all of the, the, the sort of material cross sections in the economy, right? Like, uh, you know, I need shoelaces to make shoes, and then what do I need to make shoelaces? Like, you can kind of figure out those, like, logical progressions um, by means of this gigantic spreadsheet, basically, this gigantic matrix. Um, and, and, in, and in theory, you know, once you have done the balances, um, you will have enough stuff to make everything you need to make in the economy, right? Like, everything matches up. The stuff you need is going into the stuff that needs it. Yeah, and, and that, that, that's basically what input-output analysis does. Is it, it, it's, it's, it's a very sophisticated, enormous-scale accounting mechanism. Mm -hmm. And like this, this is like actually widely deployed in throughout the world now. Like this is like and linear programming and such. This is the way that firms plan. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. It, it is. It is. It's very much used today still. And like I think that there's a there's a sort of line here about it being the algorithm that rules the world, right? Like um, very much um, like wildly successful technique. This is this is big stuff, right? Um, yeah, and like I think another key element of Kantorovich's um, innovation here was that like with the shadow prices, he could cal calculate without total information, right? That like um, you wouldn't need knowledge of the position and velocity of every particle in inside the national borders. You would just be able to to do this calculation on on partial information that was actually tractable. And the the other thing that the that Kantorovich sort of thought, like this is a thing that Longa also thought, uh, was that this use of shadow prices um, would allow you to sort of like plan out potential combinations of of goods, right? Like, so you 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 would not have like it would be superior to the market in the sense that. Um, the market just like, you know, very roughly kind of lurches towards some sort of material equilibrium um, through the process of economic crises, but using um, uh, input-output planning and using shadow prices, you would be able to look at potential alternatives without actually going through the compute process of reorganizing the entire material economy. Yeah, which is um, which is really interesting, right? Because that's the that's the thing that that's the property that's so often ascribed to market capitalism, right? That it it has 
in the abstract, it has this like contact with the virtual that it is able to do speculative kind of investment before things become actual. But like you can you can do that in a fucking computer, right? Like that's that's easy to do. Do just run a bunch of simulations, um, and you, you you get your answers before you have to actually do anything. Yeah, uh, there's there's also a sort of little detour here to mention Yugoslavia, which is, um, and I mean, we we covered a lot of this in in one of our episodes uh, about what was the book called? Markets in the Name of Socialism. Yeah, and I mean the the point here is that like uh, I, mean, <laughs> I guess it's a summary of that entire book that um, Yugoslavia had this kind of mixed, weird, mixed kind of economy where it was market socialism. But the problem with that was that it it like yeah, it's it's socialism of a kind, but it retains competition, and the competition sows discord. Uh, both between firms and between regions. So you have all the same pathologies as capitalism, plus this like redistribution mechanism, which see, which sows all this kind of resentment, right? So you have um, people in one region uh, like very much having their their sort of wealth extracted to redistribute across the the the, the rest of the socius, but they're also in competition with the people it's being redistributed to you know what i mean it uh very much breeds resentment yeah it's sort of like you have the first pass of like a market outcome and then the second pass of a material redistribution um and and you know the 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 special problem that they saw in yugoslavia was that like by moving towards the market mechanism, the it was very much a rich get richer thing because just like in you know capitalism, um, the more capital intensive industries are going to tend to have profit uh, gravitate towards them, um, and so then they were like, oh well, like you know we're just getting like the rich regions getting richer and the poor regions are getting poorer, so we're going to need to redistribute. Um, but what ended up happening then is that, like, the state became this kind of um, hated middleman in the context of generalized market competition. Um, and then, obviously, uh, because of those sort of, like, particularisms and localisms and and uh, resentments over redistribution, it was, a, it was a, if not the direct cause or only cause, it was certainly... Um, it opened a space where within which um, just sort of like ultra regressive, um, xenophobic and racist and, and, and uh, you know, ethnic hatred sort of ideologies could come in and provoke that the terrible degeneration of the state and, and wars that followed. Yeah, bad, bad stuff. Um, so, yeah, market socialism, not good. Um, they do kind of throw a bone to it here, though, as like. Uh, markets could be used as a transitional technology, but I mean, with the evidence in front of us and having yeah, this is re- this is a one I, th- I think one of their weakest arguments because they say like, oh well, look at you know collectivized farming and what a clusterfuck that was. But it's like, you know, like <laughs> what, what are you talking <laughs> about? Like, like where? Like I mean, if, if they're writing for like largely this kind of like uh, advanced capitalist world audience, like if you're writing for somebody in. Europe or America or Japan or Canada or, you know, Australia or whatever. Um, like, you know, I, I used to live in an agricultural town in Canada and like, there is no, like, not only is there no peasantry, like there isn't even a farming class anymore. Like, like they've all just been aggregated into giant corporate, um, Entities that are effectively already collectivized, right? Like the, 
like there are no, there are enormous um, uh, there are enormous um, environmental problems that that mode of, of agriculture produces, but this idea that like we somehow need to use market socialism to resolve the worker peasant tension that the Soviets dealt with in the prior oh, century <laughs> is like no, <laughs> like that that problem is effectively already been solved by capitalism. Yeah. So yeah. like yeah, if, if you were trying to introduce socialism in like one of the the many countries in the world where there still is a large peasantry, then I I could see that argument having some validity. But it's just like what like. Like, I, am I am I, I going to create market socialism with Cargill? Like, <laughs> it, 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 like it's like Walmart already has these firms inter, inter incorporated into a planned economy. Like, why would you ever introduce a market there? This just seems very contrary to the argument. But um, anyway, it's you know, I understand you got to like throw a bone to your opponents. It's it's just. Just part of rhetoric, but I, I don't think it's a strong argument. Well, I mean, especially for a for a kind of, I guess, a sort of a Jacobin kind of audience. I guess, um, yeah, eh, yeah, fuck it. Um, but yeah, I don't, <laughs> I don't think it's a particularly strong argument at all. Um, so, I mean, like we, we get back into the meat of it though with um, with our boys Cockshot and Cottrell uh, in the nineties um, coming up with this. Uh, I mean, like right in the shadow of the defeat of the Soviet Union, they, they like come come swinging with a, a big argument that actually no, this this uh, this this kind of planning is possible with modern computing. Um, yeah, this was like a specifically an attack uh, directed towards the market socialists. Um, that like that was the point of their their project because it was like, oh, the Soviet Union's over. What's next? Most people, as we saw in Markets in the Name of Socialism, were arguing for market socialism. And and Cockshaw and Cottrell were trying to put forward an alternative planned economy uh, to, to, the, to these, uh, these market socialist proposals that were, were popular at the time and uh, ultimately uh, complete failures. Mm-hmm. And so, like a uh, uh, cockshot, uh, these, these guys, um, their main sort of thing is that, like, you know, obviously hypermodern computing practices, uh, distributed planning, uh, which would require this universal access to computing and information, just very, very like cyber communism, right? Um, and I think one of, one of the sort of major innovations here, as well, is the realization that, like, in, in an economy, it's not it's not the case that everything is connected to everything else. Like, uh, computer chips don't consume chocolate as an input, for, for one example, nor do shoes, you know? So you, you, you have a matrix, and it's huge, but it's a sparse matrix, where only some things are connected to each other. Um, that, that trims the variety of the problem quite a bit, right? It brings it back down into a, re- into a region of being very tractable. And, you know, I mean, they're also arguing that I mean, you can just, just calculate to two decimal places. Like, who, who gives a shit about more than that, right? Like, um, so, like... Kind of getting back in the direction of what we see with Amazon and, and Walmart, right? Like, it's it's kind of um, good enough planning, right? Like, um, and turns out good enough planning is super fucking effective. Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, it's 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 exactly that. It's a sort of cleverer ways to come up with a good, good enough solution. Um, and, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, they say here that, like, you know, using these methods, you could compute the economy of Sweden on an ordinary computer in a few minutes and then who knows what you could do with a AWS cluster at your disposal, right? Like, um, it's, uh, it's, it's, 
it's 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 definitely a tractable problem um and in the way that like you know mises would say it's impossible it's like no it's not it's not impossible it's it's not um and you know um uh we're gonna talk more about cockshot and cotrail probably in a a, a collaboration with uh swampside chats in the future um because uh there, there's more to say about that and uh certainly uh, there's probably like more to say about the the dodgier aspects of cockshot's politics, <laughs> which are not covered in this book, understandably. <laughs> what was what was your remark earlier that like it's it's weird how when you read his writing in a in a book it's like lucid and and sensible, but when you read him on Facebook, he's just this fucking psychotic weirdo. It is it's it's extreme crank on Facebook <laughs> and you read his like essays about sort of the finer points of you know socialist politics or or about um, uh, about uh, about planning or about the history of the socialist calculation debate and it's like you're just kind of like nodding along like okay okay and then you go read him on Facebook about like you know foreign policy or about uh, uh, trans rights or feminism um, and and uh, it's just like you're you know like wide eyed like horrified emoji um, <laughs> all over your face uh, like whoa okay uh, so so that is a that is a strange strange coincidence of analysis uh, in one individual but um, uh, you know we're gonna we're gonna talk about that more uh, in the future yeah totally. Um... Yeah, uh, moving on to chapter nine, uh, Allende's socialist internet. We got our, our old boy Beer. He's back in the house. Uh, Stafford Beer and Cybersen, which I'm aware that we've we've alluded to quite a few times on the show, and I don't think we've ever really explained. So we, we might have to do a, an episode on that at some point. Um, yeah, well, we covered it with the cybernetic brain, but uh, we will we'll have to uh, maybe talk about. I don't know. Like I don't know if there's even a point in talking about cybernetic revolutionaries in this book because we've, we've done talked enough of this it. issue over so many times. But like uh, maybe maybe there's something newer we could point to that would just be like a little briefer. Uh, because you know, uh, all credit to Eden Medina for writing that book. Like it's been tremendously influential. It's a very interesting book. It's just it's just permeated the discourse at this point to to the degree that like doing a close reading of it may not uh may not be as valuable as it was back in 2011 when i first read it and was like holy shit this is really interesting yeah totally it's kind of background radiation especially for the show at this point <laughs> it's uh yeah um, but I mean, a quick run up on the story here is that um, you know uh, Allende is elected in in Chile, and uh, they sort of launch into this sort of messy process of nationalizing industry, and it's it's all very hard to manage. Um, so one of the one of the government folks, uh, Fernando Flores, contacts Stafford Beer, um, offering to you know have him come over and implement his uh, management cybernetics at a national scale. So for anyone who has, hasn't been kind of caught up on, on our stuff, right, I, I would recommend checking out the episodes on the cybernetic brain and uh, the episode on Beer's book called Designing Freedom. Um, they'll get you all the way caught up on Beer's thought. But the general, the general stuff here is that this is a, a non-Taylorist sort of way of managing complex adaptive systems, including economies. In particular, there's kind of this, this in cybernetics, there's this emphasis on domination avoidance, right? Because it's it's kind of one of the central ideas is that only like only variety can absorb variety, which means that only the people closest to the implementation can really effectively plan and adapt to to the thing. Uh, so ultimately, a system should organize itself. 
right? So this is a a science of management that emphasizes self-organization, but not in a kind of, you know, hippie kind of woo kind of like, oh, you know, we should all self-organize, man, kind of way. It's like, no, this is a, I can prove on paper that the, that, that self-organization is essential to effective uh, adaptive systems, right? Um yeah, and, and this is a this is a strong uh, basis for the kinds of arguments that the authors are making in this book about um, about uh, democratic planning producing good information. Like the 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 theory behind pure cybernetics and uh, and you know other other related uh, sorts of cybernetics that we saw in the cybernetic brain um, does support their thesis. Um, mm-hmm. Very much so. Um, so what they what they sort of established we're, we're talking here about Beer's viable system model, which is a a model for organization that meets this this challenge of having requisite variety. It meets it through both devolution and autonomy, right? That like the viable system model is a kind of social machine that allows it allows a, a system to stabilize and optimize the interactions between its um, components while allowing the components to stabilize and optimize themselves um, and recursively all the way down. Um, so it's, it's like at every level you have like de- devolution and kind of like handing things off to the lowest level possible that could, that could possibly handle it, but also kind of information and, and alert signals flowing upwards towards um, components that are maybe better placed to, to resolve the issues. And a, a lot of it focuses as well on like you know, look for anomalies in the signals, and if things if things seem to be running okay, just leave it alone. Like, don't touch it. You know, so it's like very much an inversion, right? Where in 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 management cybernetics, uh, the management is is a, is a kind of a service, right? Like a secondary operation. It's it's like a it's a service to the primary operations, which are the actual work being done, um, and management is just there to kind of optimize at various scales. Uh, so. I mean, one of the things here is that, like, they really wanted to do this kind of worker control, right? Like, worker involvement in the implementation of this process and in, like, uh, workers' control of the the sort of optimization of the economy and so on. That kind of remained an aspiration more than a reality um, because they were, they were on this, like, just crash program of, like, I mean, they were under blockade as well, right? Like, so they had, they had no resources and a, a very tight timeline. It was it was a progressively worsening blockade situation, right? Um, uh, embargo situation, right? Um, and and yeah, and like the original plan for uh, what beer was doing, like beer's original conception was like very much more like, oh, we're just gonna like kind of improve the information flows between a coordinating center and the factory managers, like the the government factory managers. Uh, but as a result of the revolutionary process. The revolutionary politics and, and pressure put on beer by Allende himself, um, there was a transition towards um, a more uh, democratic and less uh, expert-focused model of uh, organization, and this this really changed uh, you know beer's perspective on things. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, it was um, yeah. He, he he radicalizes after this, and uh, he ends up writing Platform for Change, which is a very, very radical sort of restatement of his work. Um, I mean, he writes uh, Designing Freedom, right? Like, and delivers those lectures very soon after these events, and that's where we get his his sort of legendary um, for us his his line. What is it like? Um, anytime we hear that a proposal will destroy society as we know it, we should have the courage to say thank God at last. 
Like, ooh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. My, my boy's a, rep, a real yeah. radical there, right? Like, um, yeah, yeah, no, he was really radicalized by the revolution. Um, and, uh, yeah, it, it, it's so his particular politics and outlook and the sort of general program of, 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 the, of the Cybersyn project um, did become radicalized. But because it was a, such a crash course, um, you know, with uh, things really coming to a head politically, resources becoming ever more scarce, computing uh, resources being extremely scarce, um, the sort of directives from above to workplaces to sort of democratize um, never really worked out. Like they had some meetings between managers and workers, but it wasn't very clearly explained what like they were supposed to be about. And it wasn't like the workers were really engaging in the nitty gritty of organizing and managing their workplace. Um, it, it mostly remained uh, the, the division of labor between managers and technicians on one hand and sort of like, you know, um, rank and file workers on the other uh, did not, it was not overcome here. Mm -hmm. Which is unfortunate, right? Because this is, um, I mean, of all the examples in the book, this is the one that isn't a, a sort of a mess of tyrannical bullshit and does gesture towards a a much better world. And I mean, that's so, so, so stuff we've covered on the show, right? That like, you know, Cyberson and, and Beer's uh, notions of organizing do gesture very clearly towards a, a, a much better world. But um, ultimately, I mean, it ends with a coup, right? Like they get Pinochet. Um, so we we never get to find out. <laughs> like, um, I mean, I, I mean, fr from from Medina's book, like right right up until the last moment, they were like, um, like one of the last sort of things they were doing was like putting together like VHS VHS tapes for like training to distribute to the factories to like train the workers and how to self organize, you know, like and how to how to implement the viable system model on their own. So like the, like right up until the last moment, they were desperately struggling both to keep the show going and to to actually improve on it uh, for the better in terms of workers' self-management. Yeah, it was, it, it was a very sincere effort. Very. But <laughs> we, we, we don't get to see the end of that story. <laughs> so, so, I mean, so the, like, you know, this is, a, this is an interesting point, right? Because when people say, like, oh, you know, um, like tech workers or people, uh, you know, in, in, in sort of management positions can't, can't uh, you know, sincerely attempt to work towards democratizing their workplaces. Well, this is kind of both an argument against that and an argument for that, right? Is that, you know, Beer and his team, or like Flores and his team, like they were very sincerely making an effort at democratization. It wasn't just lip service, right? So like they were in a, you know, obviously in a managerial position and, and they worked very hard at this. They, they really were trying to overcome that division of labor. But at the same time, uh, many of the, the sort of um, factory managers and stuff uh, were much less serious about it and were dragging their heels. So it's really a mixed bag, right? And also, like, I mean, there's a third layer to it where the workers didn't, like, even in an, a relatively advanced economy with a decent education system, they also just didn't really have the experience to, like, take, like, when, when, a, when a slip of paper comes under the door that says, hey, you should self-organize, they're just going to go, what the fuck? You know, like, what does that mean, you know? Yeah, it, it, it's, you know, it's, it's worrying because, like, our, our means of production, like, the material forces that we have today are so much more sophisticated than in the 70s, 
But as we saw in Graber, like a lot of the technological investment we have seen since that time has been um, to disempower workers uh, and to improve surveillance and top-down management. Um, and so, you know, the technical code has like shifted strongly in that direction. Um, and, and that has not really, a, like there has been some room, like, you know, sort of like the invention of the personal computer and that sort of thing. Like there has been some room for like workers to become more familiarized with various technologies you might use in management. Uh, but there has also been a, a, a lot of disempowerment that has happened. So, you know, I feel like we, we have a lot of work ahead of us in terms of developing meaningful self-management capacities amongst ourselves. Yeah. And that's, um, that's very much a part of, part of our program here on the show, right? Like trying to, trying to research this stuff. Uh, but yeah, it's, we, we have these tantalizing glimpses of a possible alternative, but there's a huge amount of road to ahead of us to to actually get there. Um, so yeah, uh, chapter ten, uh, planning the good Anthropocene. Um, it's a pretty light chapter. Actually, the the last two chapters I think are pretty light. One of the major points of this um, chapter is that um, the market isn't going to get us to a point where we can deal with climate change. Like it, that, that sort of like incremental nudging and just sort of stochastic drunk walk through the economy isn't going to do it. Um, and secondly, that I think this is, this is a really crucial point that meeting the challenges of the breakdown of the biosphere is on the same level as the challenges of planning the economy and that those two things actually suggest each other, right? Like one of them suggests the other that like in order to meet the challenges of the biosphere breaking down and just fucking collapsing, the answer is you need a planned economy. Um, yeah, and, and what, what the neoliberals try to do in that regard is plan by means of market engineering um sort of the the kind of thing we saw back in the 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 um uh markets in the name of socialism book right like that kind of got that or its origins in that sort of milieu um and it's very much apparent like we have a lot of evidence from this book to say we don't need to do that kind of market engineering we should just use the planning technologies we have to directly deal with these very serious issues. And, you know, it, there is a certain level at which um, that does oversimplify matters in the sense that, like, um, you know, as, as we saw in our, our discussion with, um, or in our, in our, sorry, in our discussion uh, about uh, climate change policy, or sorry, yeah, that's what it was, it was a... a <laughs> geoengineering <laughs> our discussion with Tina about geoengineering yeah um, it's possible to do this in like just like way too much of a top down way that is ignorant of local context right um, and uh, just saying like oh we'll just take Amazon and apply it to this problem uh, is not going to get us there but neither is engineering a bunch of like little cute market mechanisms uh, that are supposed to like somehow trick people into ignoring their material interests and just kind of like obliquely achieve these gigantic social engineering priorities that we need to undertake at this time as fast as possible. Yep, totally. Um, and so yeah, we need we need the world-spanning planned economy, a world socialist republic. 
we need coordination at scale, you know, kind of touching back on one of our previous episodes about organization at scale, like it has to be at scale, not just kind of local is beautiful kind of single jurisdiction stuff. Um, uh, we need we need a world spanning implementation of fucking cybersin basically. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, totally. Uh, that is that is that is that is an enormous ask. But I mean, as they point out in this book, we already have world span world spanning planned economies. Like those already exist now. This is not pie in the sky. This is something that actually exists today. It's just not doing what we need it to do. Which is the uh, basically the conclusion of the book, right, in chapter 11. Uh, the conclusion, planning works. It very much does, right? But it does it for the benefit of capital. Um, this planning apparatus has the potential, the imminent potential. Like, it's, it's fucking it's almost there, right, to, to deliver a gigantically better world for all of us. But it's stuck, right? Like, it needs, it needs liberating and it needs democratization. Um, we need to, like, democratize the, plan- the means of production, the means of planning. And the, there's an argument here that the left desperately needs to take this stuff seriously, right? Like, we, all this, like, uh, fucking, you know, small is beautiful, low, you know, don't, don't want to get involved in big stuff. Just get, get all of that shit out of here. Just, no, gone. Um, we have to engage with the contemporary means of production. We have to engage in science and technology. We have to engage with workers in those spheres. And we have to mobilize to seize control of this fucking thing. Um, and, I mean, they, they sign off with this, this wonderful little line right that planning works just not yet for us so yeah uh i yeah good stuff um there's a couple of issues though um which 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 you've made notes of here (laughs) yeah so i mean i certainly first want to like preface it with i really do appreciate the book a great deal i've I've said a lot of nice things about it and um those are all true um but there are some some sort of further like criticisms to kind of like further the discussion that I think could be made. Um, so, you know, the, the first, uh, point here is that, um, there's a big analytical flaw in the book, um, where it claims that democracy is required for good planning and uses the example of the Soviet union to say that democracy is necessary uh, but the, it also makes a very strong claim that planning works, um, and can point to empirical examples like Amazon and Walmart. Um, but those organizations are by no means whatsoever democratic. Like there, there's just, there's just no conceivable way, no matter what mental gymnastics you do that you could look at Amazon and Walmart as democratic organizations, except if you made that like ridiculous argument about consumer democracy, right? Like, you know, like, oh, there's a, there's a marketplace and then like, you know, people can decide how to spend their money and everybody can spend money. Um, like, this is just a silly argument. Nobody, nobody's advancing that in this book and, and I don't think the authors ever would advance it, right? So the, you have this, this, this big gap where there's a strong empirical argument, planning works, I have the evidence to show it. And then there is a theoretical argument saying, planning requires democracy to work. Um, and I can point to the negative example of the Soviet Union to show that it, it, it doesn't work without democracy. Um, and, and there's a big, big gap there. So, um, you know, that kind of leads me to think that the differentiating factor between the Soviet Union and Walmart 
could simply be the quality of surveillance technologies and the mode of the oppression of the workers. Um, so, you know, as we saw in Graeber, this development of surveillance technology and managerial technology has been the primary avenue of capitalist technological development since the collapse of the USSR. Like, it's not like this is just a thing that's been happening. Like, as Graeber makes a strong case for in that uh, uh, Flying Cars and the Falling Rate of Profit uh, article, um, like, this has been the main thing, right? This has been where science and technology has been directed to. So you could simply argue that, well, those efforts to develop those technologies were successful and were able to implement top-down management in a way that the Soviet Union just was not able to do because it lacked those technologies. Um, so that's, that's kind of a, a counter-argument that you could make to their, their main point. Um, so, you know, the authors of this book are like well aware of this problem, um, as well as the problem created by the division of labor between the technical and managerial strata. We saw that in the discussion of Cybersyn um, and the rest of workers. Uh, but they largely kind of like punt on this point, in my opinion, that it, it's like, ugh, like there are sort of two different stories here and they don't overlap that much there's kind of there's kind of just a very light overlap between the two yeah um definitely uh like I, I agree with that like the given the evidence presented the the proof positive is that tyrannical planning works right that like um we have we have the indication of the possibility of a worker involvement in democratic planning working through through beer's work but because it's incomplete, it remains just a, a floating signifier without a signified. So far in history, and like this is unfortunate, right? Because um, I mean, it's this classic thing where the sort of the capitalists and the far right and stuff they don't they don't really need to defend their 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 sort of interpretations of things because they can just gesture at the world as it is and say, look, look, look at the fucking awfulness. Like we don't have to defend this. Whereas what we're our project here is positing something entirely alien from what we've ever known up until this point, which is harder to buy, right? Like I, I just on a sort of like it's 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 harder to reconcile that with the sort of like well look just just fucking look at Amazon clearly ty tyranny works right like as in planning, um, and, you know but like we're we're positing something else, and it's you know. Yeah, it's 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 definitely a flaw here in the analysis that like it it remains a sort of uh, just a sort of gap that needs to be crossed, right? Rather than something that's that's evident. And and I think it is it's it's kind of easy to get overly enthusiastic about this book uh, scoring all these points against Austrian and neoliberal critics of planning, and like I totally get that because. You know, it was exciting for me to read it because I was like, oh, yeah, like, you know, I spent I spent time re reviewing this literature um, and just feeling extremely depressed for years. And like reading a book like this, it's like, you know, like, ah, no, those guys are full of crap like that. That 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 was like, oh, yeah, like, OK, like we got some evidence on our side. Like we can point to, to point to like real, real uh, examples that disprove all of this like Miesian Hayekian nonsense. Um, but we can kind of see the book as like opening up a broader discussion or a broader problematic, um, because like on the one hand, 
there is a rational case to be made that more democratic planning will be also be better planning uh, in both terms of its like means like uh, that uh, democratic planning will be better at optimizing and its ends like it will optimize towards better things than the you know capitalist hell world we live in that rational case is there like it's it's there both in in the sense that you can proceed from sort of like reasonable premises about the way humans behave and kind of just just reason out that like yeah like you know democratic planning makes more sense right like people are people are going to cooperate better if they're not operating um either under the terror of a commissar taking them out back and shooting them or you know the local dictator at the walmart branch um, just kicking them off the job so that their family starves, right? Um, like that, that kind of terror is not conducive to open discussion and that kind of thing, right? Um, so that's, that's totally reasonable. And then we also have the argument from cybernetics, right, that we can point to that, 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 that is also in favor of this case. So we have like rational arguments for this. It's just we don't have an empirical case to point to. Yeah. Um, and once and once we have an empirical case to point to, we, we won't need to make the argument because we'll have fucking won, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, um, I, I you know you kind of see those sort of like uh, papers that try to point to like some kind of greater efficiency in cooperatives versus capitalist industries and this sort of thing, but it's really hard to make the argument unless you're at such a massive scale, like. Um, like uh, Amazon or Walmart that like, oh yeah, you know, like there's no question planning works, right? Like this is just an open and shut case. Um, it, it, it's hard to make those arguments from smaller examples and it's hard to get larger arguments because of the, the technical code being what it is uh, oriented towards oppression. Yeah, so I mean, I guess I feel like we have a starting point here Um I guess it's just, it's harder. I think the real problem here is, is it's just, it's just hard to hold this argument up as like a definitive explanation for the failure of the USSR. Right. Um, otherwise I think this book is on quite solid ground. Um, yeah. And it, it, it's just, it's just, there is, there is a shadow book, right? The, there is a shadow book to this one that argues in favor of like the iron law of bureaucracy and I uh, argues in, in favor of, uh, of, uh, more and more oppressive Foucauldian nightmare technology, um, that will create these like monolithic God King states, uh, <laughs> that just benefit disgusting billionaires like Bezos, right? Like, that 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 uh that shadow argument is there, and I unfortunately I don't think we can point to the failure of the USSR as uh as as really disproving it in any meaningful way. I think I think like uh that like kind of touching back on that the point I made about um you know how the, the right doesn't actually need to defend itself we can just gesture to what's what's actual. Um, there's the same thing there that 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 shadow argument right that kind of like dark. Um, grim sort of argument is I mean it's not it's it's almost not even an argument they would need to make because it's just the sort of normal default for so many of the kind of those people right that like you get these um I mean like the fucking Silicon Valley neo-reaction dipshits like who are who are all over that like oh yeah totally like 
techno techno authoritarian fucking tyranny clearly is the the future or whatever um for them you know um so i mean like i think we we buy the argument of the book right that like it is like planning works and a democratically planned socialist society is possible but we just we don't have anything we don't like aside from the glimmer of uh of something possible in beer's work in in chile we we're we're just we 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 are starting from a position where we have, um, you know, we have our rational argument, we have our sort of stuff kind of worked out on paper a little bit, and a long, 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 boring, drab project of actually building a workers' movement capable of enacting this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and and. Um... I still come away from this book uh, feeling like more optimistic about the prospects of, of socialism and, and communism in the future um, than I than before reading it, um, despite sort of its its analytical problems. Um, and uh, you know, yeah, it's just that's I can't emphasize enough. I, I just spent years steeped in this literature and this did nonetheless feel like a breath of fresh air. Um, and, and so I, I really appreciate it from that perspective. And I, I guess I, I just, yeah, look towards that long, difficult project and, uh, and kind of ask like, you know, what's next for us, right? Like we've got, we've got something pretty solid here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. Um, whew, yeah. Fabulous stuff. Um, what is next indeed? Um, yeah, uh, thanks, listeners, for coming along with us uh, on this adventure, and um, you know, thanks, thanks for supporting the show as well. Um, you can find us on the internet at Twitter on Twitter as GIUnitPod. Uh, we're on Facebook as General Intellect Unit, um, and we're on all the podcast apps. So if you haven't done so already, subscribe, all that kind of crap. But um, best ways to help us out are to share the show with your friends, uh, anyone you think would be interested in this kind of discourse. And to go to patreon.com slash general intellect unit and uh, maybe throw us a couple of bucks a month because that would be kind of nice. What's coming next? I think we're going to be reading some 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 beer again soon. We're going to be looking at the viable system model in more detail. Um, I think that's what we've got planned next. So, uh, you know, like, uh, you know, as we said, we've got this long road ahead of us and we're going to take take a couple of steps forward uh, with some some cybernetics again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel like it's trying to sort of mediate between that that just sort of like abstract like democracy is good right sort of uh argument and and something a little more practical and and so yeah it's worth digging into that a little bit more for sure yeah totally and um and oh one more thing is that you should probably check out uh if you go to on the web go to emancipation.network um you can check out some of our sister shows on there uh swamp side chats and from alpha to omega uh, they're really great folks and um, if you like this kind of style of like kind of pretty analytical like going through stuff step by step um, and really tearing it apart uh, you'll like those shows, shows too yeah definitely yeah I think that's everything uh, we'll, thanks again for listening and we'll catch you again in a couple of weeks bye bye bye